Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello and welcome to the Friday edition of Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Well, Ukraine has pulled off another spectacular this week with a second attack on the Kerch Bridge, a prime target for both propaganda and practical reasons. Once again, Kyiv has demonstrated its skill and cunning and raised further questions about Russian competence, leaving an already damaged Vladimir Putin looking more vulnerable still. This, it would seem, will only intensify the unrest among senior Russian commanders who are pushing back against the Ministry of Defense leadership, resulting in numerous sackings and removals. We'll be looking at what all this means for the future of the war. Well, the bridge success and the evidence of serious splits in the army will be some compensation for the continuing slow progress on the battlefield. The Ukrainian Ground Forces commander, Alexander Sierski, has made no secret recently of the fact that, I'm quoting here, our advances are not going as fast as we would like. And uh, he says that in current conditions, things are unlikely to speed up soon. But uh, set against that, Russian troops are being steadily degraded at the front. And behind the lines, of course, there's this turmoil as the Kremlin launches what appears to be a purge of senior officers. But let's start off with the bridge. To fail to prevent one attack may be regarded as a misfortune, but two looks like carelessness, as Oscar Wilde didn't say, Asel. Exactly right, Patrick. Now, if you remember before the first attack last October, the Russians boasted of having 20 layers of protection defending the bridge, which was opened back in 2018 to link Crimea to the Russian mainland. It was intended, of course, not just as an infrastructure project, but to emphasize that Crimea, which Putin invaded in 2014, was now and forever would be part of Russia. So there's huge symbolism involved here. It's also, of course, a major logistical route carrying supplies to the Russian forces in eastern Ukraine. And for both of these reasons, it's considered by the Ukrainians to be a legitimate military target. And I have to say, I agree with them that it should be so. They haven't claimed responsibility for the attack, but nor did they say openly they carried out the previous one, though it's glaringly obvious that they did do it. Russia has responded with the usual hyperbolic bluster, claiming that the US and Britain were behind it, and of course with threats of vengeance from good old Margarita Simonian, editor-in-chief of state broadcaster RT, wondering out loud whether Russia should not blow up Tower Bridge. 
Well, I sincerely hope they don't soar. I live in West London, and if they did that, life would become impossible because Hammersmith Bridge, just down the road, the main artery, has been closed for nearly three years now to traffic, and they're just about to shut down Wandsworth Bridge uh, just up the river. So we're already pretty much sealed off from, from South London as it stands. But seriously, all this venting seems to me to be an indication of just how rattled the Russians are. Don't you think? I mean, we're not sure exactly how the attack was done, but it seems to have been carried out by four improvised jet skis loaded up with explosives. Now, three of them seem to have come from Snake Island, you know, this very strategic lump of rock uh, down in the Black Sea on the kind of, just off the kind of border with Romania, which was captured by Ukraine just over a year ago. Well, the Russians might have expected that, but another one of these drones, these improvised drones, seems to have come from the other side of the bridge, from the Sea of Azov, which Ukraine has no access to and the Russians supposedly control. The speculation is that a Ukrainian ship of some sort, disguised or whatever, uh, somehow snuck in there and launched uh, one of these drones after the first attack, there were lots of promises, of course, that this would never happen again. But here we are. Now, to cover up for the failure, the Kremlin is resorting to its threadbare tactic of blaming the evil West. But it's really another reputational body blow for Putin, wouldn't you say, so? as well as creating significant military problems for Russia, even if they're only temporary. Yes, uh, this is a double blow because it affects the battlefield as well as the political situation. The Russians used the road and rail link over the bridge as one of their main supply routes to the invasion forces, and it was considered to be less risky than the overland route from Russia proper. The main supply lines along the north shore of the Sea of Azov are now within range of the new missiles Britain and soon France have given Ukraine. And just the day before the bridge operation, there were reports of three storm shadow strikes. Now, the latest estimates are that although the rail bridge is up and running again, the road link may not be even partially operational until mid-September and not fully repaired until November, which will make resupply to the southern Russian front vulnerable on the main supply route, which is the E-58 highway, which runs through Mariupol and Melitopol to Kherson for several crucial weeks. Even without missile attacks, footage shows that there have been extensive traffic jams and accidents along the road. Now, there's another aspect of the incident which struck me, Patrick, which was that a Russian civilian couple were killed and their daughter injured. Uh, we've mentioned before, of course, the obvious danger of Kiev slipping down the moral high ground if there is an incident producing significant civilian casualties. Quite so. Well, I don't think this nonetheless would have been a consideration when the Ukrainian planning was being conducted. I was talking to people in Ukraine yesterday, and I was wondering if there'd been any mention of these casualties. Well, it seems this couple were from Belgorod uh, in Russia proper. So the question uh, the Ukrainians are asking themselves, is what, why were they coming to Crimea in the first place? Well, it appears there's been a, a Russian official campaign to try and encourage families to visit Crimea, uh, where there are kind of bargain holidays to be had. But of course, the real purpose is to reinforce the notion that Crimea uh, is a you know Russian vacation destination, and they're you know, very much part of Russia. So on the Ukrainian side, there was speculation that this was what uh, this family were doing there. So I'm afraid very little sympathy for them. You know, it's not really surprising, is it, Saul? You only have to think back to Britain and the Second World War when it was pretty clear early on in the strategic bombing campaign uh, that German civilians were being killed in large numbers. 
but public concern was confined mostly to a few churchmen and one or two politicians. Uh, but even the likes of George Orwell, who had a very highly developed conscience, uh, concluded that the Germans really had it coming to them. And after all the terror and the bloodshed that, that the Russians have inflicted on Ukrainian cities, it's hardly surprising that Ukrainians feel the same. Well, exactly right. Um, of course, yeah, I think both of us agree, Patrick, every civilian death in war is a tragedy, but some are you know, more preventable than others. When you're sitting in your flat in the middle of a, a town in Ukraine and a Russian missile arrives, or a restaurant for that matter, that's one thing, and that's a despicable act uh, of di directly targeting civilians. This bridge, on the other hand, is a genuine military target, as we've discussed. The obvious reasons are that it's a military supply route. And if you're foolish enough as a Russian to want to go on holiday in Crimea, which in effect is, is in the war zone, then you frankly have to take your chances. And you can absolutely understand why the Ukrainians are, are not shedding too many tears about this. But let's return to the consequences of this strike for the war proper, because it seems to me that the bridge fiasco, from the Russian point of view, that is, can only add to the chaos inside their military structures. Ben Wallace, the outgoing British Minister of Defence, confirmed the other day that, and I quote, the splinter in the hierarchy of the Russian army is very real. There are reports of numerous firings at the top, with at least 11 senior officers dismissed, suspended, detained or disappeared. What precisely is behind them and what they mean is not entirely clear. Uh, we know, of course, that some are almost certainly connected to the Wagner mutiny. But what's essentially happening is that the Russian MOD is systematically removing commanders from some of their best units for challenging the conduct of the Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, and the Chief of Staff, Valery Gerasimov, and the process shows no signs of abating. Well, it's been reported, as we mentioned before, that Gerasimov had been removed, but that doesn't seem to be the case now, and it seems to me that he and Shoigu are fighting back. Last week, we mentioned the sacking of the 58th Combined Arms Army Commander, Colonel General Ivan Popov. Then came the reported dismissal of 106th Guards Airborne Division Commander, Major General Vladimir Selivostov, Mill bloggers say that in addition, two divisional commanders and two deputy divisional commanders also got the chop, and there have also been stories of arrests. These reports, of course, are all unconfirmed, though the Institute for the Study of War believes they conform to a pattern that suggests they are true. What's extraordinary is that the units these guys commanded were among the better ones in action on key sectors of the front in Ukraine. Sir Livestov, for example, commands or commanded the 106th Division which is committed to defending against Ukrainian assaults on Bakhmut's northern and southern flanks. Now, all these commanders seem to be being punished for speaking out about the inefficiency and lack of support they're getting from the top. One seemed concerned by the fact that his troops were not told about the construction of the Nova Kokovka hydroelectric power station, which took place on the 6th of June and which forced a hurried withdrawal from fixed positions, which no doubt affected that commander's troops. Yeah. I mean, what's even more interesting to me is that the insubordination among the commanders appears to be spreading to some of their soldiers. Now, Russian mill bloggers shared an audio clip, this was a couple of days ago, in which uh, paratroop units appeared to be threatening that they were going to withdraw from their positions in Kherson Oblast if the MOD, the Russian MOD, that is, arrested their commander, Mikhail Toplinsky, uh, or threatened his life. Now, his, his name's come up quite a lot. Uh, he's, you know, very highly regarded commander of the, of the uh, airborne forces. And he was also, you might remember, an ally of um, Wagner-Boski Evgeny Prigozhin. 
So this amounts to essentially a mutiny, doesn't it? Um, we don't know how serious it is, but the fact that it's even being talked about is significant. One way or other, these dissident generals, they're, they're pushing the same line as Prigozhin, aren't they? And that's that the MOD and the top brass are incompetent, they're corrupt, they're utterly cynical in the way they, they waste lives, and they've got to go. Now, sacking uh, these critics, you know, who are, their soldiers will see as defending their interests, sacking them wholesale doesn't seem to me to be a very effective way for the Kremlin to go about dealing with the problem. And the, and the likelihood is that this is going to spread downwards, isn't it? And as far as I can see, a total collapse is not entirely fanciful. Uh, there are already mill bloggers claiming that their whole units, I mean, small units, platoon-sized units, admittedly, have been surrendering wholesale to uh, Ukrainian forces in the Zaporizhia area. Uh, they're apparently fed up with the same things, you know, lack of supplies, lack of uh, proper concern for, the, for, for them and, and their needs. Now, it's also interesting, isn't it? They'd rather surrender to the Ukrainians, to their enemy, than face the consequences if they simply pack up and go home. And that life in a prisoner of war camp is preferable to uh, the kind of punishment they might face from the Russian authorities. Yes, and we've had an update on casualty figures, which have a lot to do, I suspect, with the unrest. Ben Wallace said that the casualty rates were horrendous, I quote, and it would, and I quote, not be wrong to say that at least 230 to 250,000 dead and injured Russians. Now, he contrasted that with the 15,000 the Soviet Union lost in Afghanistan, and that was over a period of 10 years. So, yes, surely these losses will have a serious effect on morale and resolve on the battlefield. Now, on a different subject, the Russians seem to be preparing an offensive in the northern sector of the front around Kupiansk with a big buildup of troops, artillery, and armor. Now, this information, interesting enough, is coming from the Ukrainian side, but the Russian Ministry of Defense itself has claimed gains of up to two kilometers in this area. These are unverified, needless to say. This seems to be an attempt, of course, to draw Ukrainian reserves to the Kupiansk area and away from the critical areas of the theater like Bakhmut, where Ukraine still seems to be making steady, if not decisive, progress. Well, that's all we've got time for in part one. Do join us after the break for some more fascinating listeners' questions, particularly on the vexed subject of cluster munitions. Welcome back to part two of Battleground Ukraine. Um, if you can hear a little bit of creaking, I should say, uh, that's because I'm currently all at sea in the Mediterranean in burning heat, my annual vacation. Those of you who listen to the podcast regularly will remember I did the same thing last August. It's July, of course, now, but it's very, very hot. But anyway, apologies if you're getting a little bit of interference from the creaking of the boat as I rattle around the Mediterranean. Okay, now, before we go into listeners' questions, I've literally just received an email from our cyber expert, David Alexander. Um, it's too long to read out in entirety, but it does include some really interesting updates on the cyber war. So I'll just go to a couple of them. And the first thing David says is, while I'm not anything like an expert in ele electronic warfare, I have been talking to some former colleagues who are more knowledgeable than I. And he was slightly mistaken in, in his previous email response to my question. The most modern systems such as Storm Shadow are designed to be resistant to GPS jamming by having multiple guidance systems. Older systems such as the Excalibur 155 shells are not, but that does not necessarily mean they're being 
badly degraded in accuracy. The degree to which GPS is being bent on the ground at any given time in an area of the battlefield can be calculated by using sensor systems designed to detect this kind of activity. Uh, devices such as this can be deployed to detect and report on the variations in GPS signal. So, I mean, the overall point here is that, yes, the Russian jamming systems can be effective against some systems, but not the most sophisticated. So that's the first big point he made. Another area in which the Russians are currently making life difficult for the Ukrainians is that of drone warfare. It's been widely reported that the Russians have updated their jamming systems to interfere with the radio signals used to control the Ukrainian drones, making them very difficult, if not impossible, to use temporarily. This affects both the reconnaissance and attack drone teams. As before, the Ukrainians can seek to change the way the drones are programmed and controlled to try and counter this. They have also made seeking out the very capable Russian electronic jamming systems and destroying them a priority. Uh, and I think we know from other reports that that is being done. And the third point I'll uh, read out is I'm sure you've seen the reports such as this, that hackers have once more compromised a wide group of Russian state TV stations to broadcast a deep fake image of Vladimir Putin making a speech to the nation. That's the third time they've achieved a major hack. Yet again, Russian cyber defenses have been proven inadequate. So I'll sift through the rest of uh, David's email when I have time and, and bring the update to you next week, I think. But let's move on to questions for this week, Patrick. The first one is from Dominique Bentvelsen. Uh, he's from Holland and he says, great podcast, love in-depth analysis. I was struck by your discussion of left-wing media being somewhat sympathetic to Moscow. Here in the Netherlands, it's the far right that at times blatantly supports Moscow. Most notoriously, he writes, the Forum for Democratie, led by Thierry Baudet. I would think that it's neither left or right that has sympathies for Moscow, but it's the populists that have this leaning. Do you have any thoughts on this matter? Patrick, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that's that's a good point, Dominique. Uh, I mean, right next door in Germany, you've got the increasingly popular alternative for Deutschland, which uh, over the years has shown veiled support for Russia in France, you've got the Rassemblement National, what was the old National Front led by Marine Le Pen, uh, which has traditionally been sympathetic to Russia. Uh, only the other day, a French parliamentary report published said that, quotes, Le Pen's outfit was totally aligned with Russian rhetoric. And they cited the example of the way that uh, you know Le Pen herself, when she's referring to Crimea, refers to it as as Russian, uh, despite you know everyone else in the West saying that it isn't. So you know it's not difficult to see why before the war, populist parties, populist politicians like Nigel Farage here in Britain might align with Putin's regime and see good things in it because of its emphasis on traditional values, on putting Russia's interests first, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and of course hostility to pan-national entities like the. EU. But it is a mixed picture. Uh, the invasion has certainly changed minds among the, the European right, particularly in Italy, where uh, the arrival of Georgia Maloney in power uh, was before she actually won. It was widely predicted that she, as a far-right politician, that's how she's usually described, would be kind of essentially pro-Moscow and anti Kiev, but um, that hasn't happened at all. In fact, quite the opposite. She's been very vocally supportive of Ukraine, and I, I would argue that um, you know if you are on the right, you can see in Ukraine's attitude and its story and the struggle it's put up quite a lot that chimes with your own uh, worldview. So I think there are kind of you know countervailing 
forces, uh, ideological forces at work in this story. Okay, now the creaking's really getting quite strong. We're being rolled around by a difficult sea, but I'll uh, I'll talk through this nonetheless. Um, and this one's from Kaiser O'Brien, doesn't give his uh, location. And he asks a question, uh, he's interested in our, in our thoughts on recent suggestions that Russia may use the Wagner Group in Belarus in an operation to take control of the so-called Suvalki Corridor and thus link up Kaliningrad, which of course is a, a Russian possession on the Baltic coast, to Belarus and sever Lithuania from Poland. To Kaiser's admittedly layman's mind, this would uh, have no direct positive impact on the Russian operations in Ukraine and would only draw NATO into war by triggering Article 5, which he believes would inevitably result in a Russian defeat. But would the use of Wagner create a gray area for Article 5 activation, given that they are mercenary force rather than the, an actual Russian army unit? That's the question. Yeah, I wouldn't apologize too much all for the for the creaking in the background. I think the, our listeners probably find it pretty atmospheric of wondering what where you are and what exactly you're doing. Your yacht does get the odd mention, doesn't it, from time to time? It's uh, numerous refits that it goes in for. But anyway, it's good to see that you're getting some use out of it. Anyway, to return to the question, this is the um, Sewelki Gap, the Sewelki Corridor. It's a 100-kilometer-long land bridge between the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad, which is up on the Baltic, to Belarus, uh, and the corridor runs along the Poland-Lithuania border. Now, this has long been an area of concern for NATO. Even before the invasion, there was worry that Putin might launch an attack to link the two territories, so long before Ukraine became the big issue. I'd say two things here. First is that Wagner on its own is not capable of, of doing something like this. We do tend to overestimate its capabilities just because of its reputation for brutality, I think. And Russian conventional forces uh, have you know, very much got their hands full at the moment. So I don't see them diverting uh, their efforts up there. And secondly, I, I, I do agree. But I think it would definitely trigger Article 5. Capturing the corridor would essentially cut off the Baltics from the rest of Europe. So that could only be seen as a direct attack on NATO members. And NATO has long been preparing for exactly this. Way back in 2016, it held an exercise called Anaconda, inside Poland, which was designed uh, to counter any such move. Yeah, and we should add, of course, Patrick, that um, since the Wagner mutiny, Putin's effectively uh, been forced to out Wagner uh, as a government-controlled organization. It's been funding it, it's been directing its operations, and uh, and for that reason, you're absolutely right. It, this would certainly trigger Article 5, because Wagner would be seen as an arm, as it is, of the Russian state, albeit an arm with a commander or commanders, uh, you know, who were prepared to flout Putin's authority recently. Okay, got one here from Kyle in Australia, and he's talking about the upcoming Russian presidential elections due in March next year. He says, what do you think are the chances that Putin will win? Has the war impacted on his popularity? Will the public accept a rigged election this time around, etc., etc.? But I think we've said before, and I, you know, I've been thinking more about this, that I think it's by no means certain that, that Putin will run. In fact, I think it's pretty unlikely that he will be a candidate. All the kind of thinking, and we're kind of almost reverting to the old Soviet era of Kremlinology, aren't we, with no one really knowing what's going on and having to read the runes by you know odd statements and appearances and all the rest of it. But if there is a consensus emerging, it's that the cabal, you know, this sort of security clique, will quietly oust him offer him sort of you know retirement and kind of 
safety, basically, for himself and his family and put forward their own candidate who will be very much one of their own. Now, in terms of what that means for the war, as we've said before, and I still hold this view, I think it's actually good news. It could lead to peace. I mean, if the sensible thing to do would be to blame all the misfortunes uh, of the campaign on Putin and and those uh, immediately around him. So I think, yeah, Putin going would also obviously lead to the uh, MOD, current MOD hierarchy going as well, and some sort of um, attempt to, if not bring peace, at least an end to the war. So that's the way things seem to me at the moment. Is that Does that seem reasonable to you, Saul? Yes, I think we realise, Patrick, that it's always a, a fool's game to try and anticipate what's likely to happen in the future. But for so many different reasons, Putin's authority is being weakened. And I think there's every likelihood that he won't stand. Having said that, things could change. You know, something could happen on the battlefield that could shore him up. I don't think it's likely, but something could. We, we've already mentioned on the programme this this so-called effort up in the north of the Eastern Front, threatening Kupiansk. Could something happen there? On that subject, actually, Patrick, it's interesting that some of the troops that have been, and this is the Russians admitting this, um, they're going to be using convict troops. And we don't think they're going to be uh, terribly effective, frankly, any more than they were fighting for Wagner. They'll be mowed down uh, in droves. But, But in any case, it's unlikely, I suspect, that he'll still be around in a year's time. But we'll have to wait and see. Now, I'm, I'm going to just more or less read out the next one because we've had a lot of interest in uh, what the delivery of cluster munitions will mean for the Ukrainian war effort. And there have been conflicting views. I was a bit sceptical about them when, I was, when it was mentioned last week. But we've got a corrective message here from Ian P. Foots in the USA, who appears to be a retired uh, military man, which is packed with, with really interesting information. And he takes very much the opposite view now, he, he, first of all, he takes a slightly to task of the way that we're pronouncing the ATACMS missile system, which we all know means uh, Army Tactical Missile System. He says it's pronounced ATACMS. Anyway, he believes that uh, cluster bombs is a bit of an imprecise term, as he, he says it can mean several things. What he thinks uh, it actually means is not bombs delivered by the, from the air from an aircraft, but essentially uh, shells which are delivered uh, or or kind of rockets which are delivered by HIMARS systems, etc. And uh, he says, basically, these would have a significant effect on the battlefield in Ukraine's favour. And he writes, the entire point of this type type of munition is to saturate a target area with fragmentary bomblets that can penetrate light armour and kill infantry. When 12 of these rockets are fired in the right pattern, they can, in theory, destroy any lightly armoured vehicle or kill troops with a one-kilometre radius. Now, given the sophistication of HIMARS and the ATAC-Ms, this should be a a huge advantage to the Ukrainians because it means they can really home in on troop concentrations, on vehicle concentrations, with devastating effect, it would seem. Uh, And indeed, there's... um, some confirmation of this actually in a recent BBC report uh, from the front where an army officer is quoted as saying that uh, this will actually uh, inflict when they arrive, when they're actually put it to use, they'll inflict maximum damage on enemy infantry. The more infantry who die here, the more their relatives back in Russia will ask the government, why? Why are we here? So this is very much in in keeping uh, with the Ukrainian strategy to date, isn't it, Saul, of trying basically to kill as many, to put it in crude terms, to kill as many 
Russians as possible, and for that in turn to have a political effect back home. It's not a, it's not uh, their the sole strategy, but it, it's a sort of in combination with uh, more conventional sort of, you know, punching through, taking ground, encirclement, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I mean, it seems from both our correspondence assessment and from the Ukrainians' own view uh, that this actually is something that they, they're very much welcoming rather than just an indication that they're running out of conventional artillery shells and are now just scrabbling around for anything that's on offer. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that, that that message because it does give an indication of the effect that the cluster munitions can have in an offensive way. Uh, we know from recent reports, actually, Patrick, this week that they are about to be used, apparently, in Bakhmut. And of course, you know, from, from the description we've just heard, it's likely that they are going to have a considerable effect. Now, what about the morality? Well, a separate questions come from Sebastian Komarovsky, who uh, is a Pole living in London, and he can't understand what all the fuss is about the use of these munitions. Surely, he writes, if someone attacks your country, you can use uh, any available means to defend yourself. And here's the interesting point. In Ukraine, he says, there are no other civilians apart from the Ukrainians themselves. Uh, therefore, any risk involved will be directly to the Ukrainian people. If they're willing to take that risk, we should supply the weapons to them without a blink. Well, I think probably I I agree. I'm not so sure about you, Patrick. You're a little bit, having seen them in action, you're a little bit more concerned, aren't you, about the sort of long-term effect about using these munitions. But as we've heard, they might make a real difference. Yeah, no, I think that uh, the, the latter point, I mean, it's all about the dud rate, isn't it? American cluster munitions apparently have got a much lower dud rate. By that, I mean bomblets that don't explode are left lying around. They're still potentially lethal for many years afterwards. But as Sebastian points out, you know, this is Ukrainian territory. They've, they've already, when they do recapture uh, their lost lands, uh, they're going to be you know, sown with all sorts of unexploded ordnance, mines, etc., etc. So it's just another um, little element of, of, a, of a bigger problem. So I, should, I don't think that's actually you know, an argument for not using them on reflection. And, you know, there is often this question raised, you know, is, is it more moral to kill someone in one way than another? You know, chemical weapons were a classic example of that. But there is something, I think, in all our psyches which revolts at, at certain weapons like flamethrowers in the Second World War, whereas the logic is, well, you know, kills the enemy one way or another. So w what's the problem? Yeah, on the sub quickly, a quick aside on the subject of flamethrowers, actually, Patrick, I'm just reading a, what I, I think is going to be a remarkable work of nonfiction set in the Pacific, written by the son of Eugene Sledge, who wrote, of course, that famous memoir, With the Old Breed. And what his son, Henry, is doing is he's adding in a lot of material that was taken out of the original manuscript because there wasn't room when they published it in 1980. I mean, this is gold dust, this material. And one of the fascinating points he makes about the taking of Peleliu, going back to your flamethrower comment, is that without flamethrowers, uh, and Eugene Sledge was in no doubt, was a horrendous way to die. He was actually asked to be a flamethrower operator and turned down the offer very sensibly because a lot of them were killed. But he didn't think they could have taken Peleliu, where the uh, Japanese, of course, were heavily dug into the coral rock without the use of flamethrowers. So sometimes, grim as it is, uh, it's a sort of necessary means to win a war, unfortunately. Okay. Robert Lee's asking, why is the deportation of children from Ukraine to Russia not getting more coverage or causing greater international outrage? He says, as a father, the idea of my children being taken away from me and deported to another country and not knowing if I will ever see them again is a heartbreaking thought. For me, this is one of the most shocking things about this awful war started by the evil Vladimir Putin. 
unfortunately, I don't know what more we could do apart from getting involved militarily. Have you got you've got some updates on this, haven't you, Saul? Yeah, well, the news this week, I mean, you know, we've already reported uh, multiple times, Patrick, about the uh, deporta- forced deportation of children. What, what seems to have happened uh, is that they were invited. Now, of course, these are all children in the Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine and were invited to go on holiday, uh, a little break from the war, uh, generally speaking, down to the Crimea. And from there, they were then forcibly taken into Russia. Now, the extra details that are coming out this week is that an awful lot of them have also been taken to Belarus, which is not going to look good for Belarus's strongman, making it seem as as if he's got nothing to do with this war. We all know he's Putin's puppet, and this is uh, extra information on that. What seems also to be happening, particularly grim, Patrick, is that the children are being brainwashed. They're being taught the Russian national anthem. They're being uh, told that the reason for the war is because of Nazis in Ukraine, and they're effectively being turned, or at least that's the intention, into little Russians in the hope that they will, of course, support the Russian invasion and the Russian occupation of parts of Ukraine. So it's a grim story, and it links in, of course, to the BRICS summit, which also interesting information on that. So the BRICS summit is going to take place in South Africa, and South Africa has been bending over backwards to do anything it can to uh, discourage Putin from attending in person because. They are signatories, that is, the South Africa is a signatory to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and it is bound to arrest Putin if he attends. The Russians, on the other hand, have said that if he does that, it will be a casus belli, and they're not letting him off the hook by saying Putin's not going to attend. He probably will attend. So we'll see how this turns out. But of course, the point in all of this in relation to the deportation of children is that that is why the ICC issued its arrest warrant for Putin, because they see him directly responsible. So it's a grim, tangled mess. But the more publicity, I quite agree, Robert, the better. Yeah. But set set against that, I think we should never lose sight of the fact that although almost innumerable examples of Russian cruelty and and brutality uh, on the battlefield and elsewhere, you know, that these conscript soldiers are themselves, to an extent, victims of the system. And there's a message here from... Tim Rees, who's a Brit living outside Munich, which makes this point. And he says, uh, I'm ashamed to say I've become a little too nonchalant about some of the head cam and drone footage coming from the front lines. Three videos have shocked me recently. All three involved the suicide of Russian soldiers, two who killed themselves with grenades, uh, and the third with his own machine gun. And he says, my questions are why, oh, why do these young men feel the only way out is suicide? What unacceptable future do they see for themselves in the hands of the Ukrainians? Are they judging their own treatment as a prisoner of war on the horrendous standards they have seen and or been part of at the hands of their Russian comrades? Have they been brainwashed? So he's basically saying, you know, this is dreadful, brutalizing process uh, that is going on on the Russian side. And he concludes, it's also incredibly tragic. These young men had their entire lives in front of them, but seem hell-bent on throwing them away for the obsessions of an older man. History repeats himself. Well, indeed it does. Uh, Hitler, Stalin, you know, the ghosts of both of them really do hover over the story, don't they, Saul? They do indeed. Okay, the creaking is back, uh, but you'll be glad to hear that's all we have time for, so you don't have to listen to it too much longer. Um, Do join us next week for the Battleground Ukraine's big interview, and we've got a cracker next week, an interview with Aidan Aslin, who you will remember was the Briton who fought for the Ukrainian Marines, was captured at Mariupol, 
uh, and later sentenced to death. It's a grim, grim interview, but with some absolutely fascinating material there. So do join us for that. And of course, on Friday, when we'll be doing the usual roundup of news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.